Well, I don't think there's been a more loved verse than the one we're looking at today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the number one top-loved Bible verse on the top ten chart for 2,000 years. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, with the fact that this has been loved so much, is it? Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. This is truly an incredible verse that has been used by God for incredible things. And in fact, I don't think we will even know how much God has used this verse until we stand with him in glory. So the question is, why is this verse so loved? Why do people love this verse so much? And I think if we take a quick look at the reasons, I think we would understand why it's so loved. In fact, it's loved so much, I think, because it tells us about the love of God. This verse tells us that God is a loving God. Well, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that great to know? God is a loving God. This verse tells us that love compelled God to come to the rescue. Well, that's great to know. That's even better to hear. Not only is God loving, but he was compelled by love to come to the rescue. And it tells us that there is a way to respond to his love that we can have everlasting life. Amazing. Who does not want to hear about God's love? Who doesn't love to hear about that? This is truly an incredible verse. It is understandable and right, I should say, that this is so loved. What makes this even more loved is that its purpose is to communicate something to us that we would never be able to understand apart from divine revelation. Think about that. We can look at the world around us and we can tell that in some sense God loves us, right? We have food to eat. We have the sun comes out. It rains so that things can grow and that we can survive. I mean, that's God's love that is totally ignored by the world oftentimes. But it is God's love. But that is something everyone can see. What people cannot see is what is revealed here. We can only understand this love of God through the revealed word of God. So this is a loved verse for good reason. The problem is that many people who know this verse know this verse alone. And uh, perhaps along with the verse, um, thou shalt not judge, right? <laughs> that verse, God so loved the world and thou shalt not judge, sometimes is the summation of what we know. And we think from that, we conclude from that, that we understand God and we understand his love. And, and that's a huge problem when we think because we understand or know, I should say, this verse 
in our minds, and thou shalt not judge, to think that somehow we understand God and his love is a very big mistake, right? Oftentimes, this world combines the worldly ideas with this vague notion of God, and we come out with worldly understandings of verses like this. We define God and his love in a way that is foreign to scriptures whenever we do that. And the sum total of our theology is usually this. God loves me just the way I am, and no one has the right to judge me. (laughs) And that's it. So this brings me to why we are here today. Why are we here? (laughs) Our purpose every time we meet is to expound God's word in such a way that we understand it and we are moved to exalt and to worship God. My job is to explain God's word in light of the entirety of God's word and to make it help to explain it in a clear and concise way. It is not wrong to say that the central reason why we gather together is to hear God's word expounded. Because that is true. That's why we are here this morning. That's the main reason why we are gathered together. And I have to be so careful not to bring my ideas into the word of God. I have to be so careful that I work so very hard to say, what does this say in light of the entirety of scriptures and to not bring my thoughts into it? And the result should be joyful, awe-inspiring worship of God. Not just feel-good fuzzies that the world has. This is our worship manual. And God's way of speaking is always the best way. And is always the best way for understanding God and compelling worship to rise up within us and for the church to respond with praise. So let's look through this verse. And I want to look basically word for word at this verse. And the first word we come to is for. And this word indicates that love is what motivated God to act savingly on our behalf. Love compelled God to act on our behalf, to implement the rescue plan of salvation. Now, for is such a small word, isn't it? It's really insignificant, and we can easily pass right by it and not even notice it. But it's important because it connects us to what was before it. And it gives us context, right? And so you might ask, why is context such a big deal? Why does context even matter? And the reason is because failure to understand context is the reason why there has been so misinterpretation of God's word. (laughs) And the failure is ours, The failure is ours if we fail to understand the word of God rightly, if we do not take into account the surrounding verses. There have been so many erroneous interpretations because we failed to take something into context. And all you have to do is look at the news today, right? How many times do you hear a quote that someone made totally out of context just to give someone's agenda and to make them look bad, right? That's often what happens. And if you heard the whole news story, if you knew what he said before that and afterwards, you might say, well, he wasn't even saying what you're saying he said. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? 
And so context is so, so important. So what is the broad context? If you look at verses 1 through 15, you can tell the broad context, right? Jesus is telling Nicodemus how to have eternal life. And do you remember what the answer was? You, you must be born again. That was the answer. And then Nicodemus is very confused. He doesn't understand it. And he doesn't want to understand it. He doesn't believe what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus continues to explain what he means to be born again. And then we get to verses 14 through 15 that we looked at last week. This is the immediate context. Right? That was the broad context. Now we're looking at the immediate context. Jesus is explaining in verses 14 through 15 exactly where this eternal life comes from. The basis for this eternal life. Eternal life comes from Jesus dying on a cross. Right? Our sins are held against us. We have been banished from the presence of God. Remember the Garden of Eden? Remember they were banished from the presence of God. They could not enter the presence of God. Right? Because their sins. Because they were sinful and rebellious against God. And so this curse needs to be removed. That's the only way we can ever have eternal life is if the curse is removed. So that's exactly why Jesus went to the cross, to take the curse on himself so that we would not have to bear the curse. That's the reason he went to the cross. Remember last week we looked at he was lifted up so that those who look to him might be saved, just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert. So this brings us to the connecting word, right? We've gone all this way to get to the connecting word for in verse 16. This connects us to the broad context of verses 1 through 15 and the immediate context of verses 14 through 15. So what in the world does this mean? <laughs> what are we talking about? In other words, the for of verse 16 indicates that the driving force, compelling factor that moves Jesus to come and die on the cross so that we would have eternal life is God's love. For God, for God, so loved the world. For God, so loved the world. It's saying, after saying that he must be lifted up, for God, so loved the world. What he's saying is that what motivated the Son to come and bring eternal life was the Father's love. It compelled him and it drove him. So how about the rest of the words? Almost all the rest of the words in these verses express the manner and the magnitude of God's love and the salvation that he accomplishes and the salvation that he offers. And we're going to look at these words to look at the magnitude and manner of God's love. And so the first word we come to gives us the source of this love. God. Right? The love we are talking about here is God's love. And I want you to consider the degrees of love that could come from, the, the significance of the love, I should say, that could come from different types of people, okay? So imagine if someone you didn't know just loved you, you know, that's, that's good, right? Imagine if a friend loved you, right? Now that's even better. <laughs> imagine if a king loved you, that was also your friend, <laughs> a king, a, a ruler, a great person of this world. Imagine if they loved you. 
Now imagine if God loved you. Well, there's a difference there. There's a significance there that is incalculable. You can't calculate it. Immeasurable difference. God, the creator. No one else like him. So what does it mean that this is God's love? Well, it means that this love comes from an immeasurably great source. Or you might call a reservoir, right? It's a measurably great source that this love comes from. There's no way of, of calculating the amount of love that God has in himself. An infinite capacity to love. It also means that this love is always in line with his attributes, his character, right? He is righteous, he is patient, he is holy, and he is almighty. And you could say his love is righteous, his love is patient, his love is holy, and his love is an almighty love. And it's always driven by God's perfect and righteous purposes. If you want to know the love of God, you have to know that it's always driven by his perfect purposes, his righteous purposes. And therefore, if you're his child, you can know this for sure, that his love is always dri- dr- being driven to make you holy. And that's why sometimes we go through very hard times in our lives that we can't understand. Everything we go through, all the struggles and the difficulties, if you're a believer, is God's love for you making you holy. Every trial is God saying, I love you, even if you can't understand it and comprehend it. They are making you holy, righteous. They are refining you to look like Christ. The next word we come to is the descriptive word, so. Now, I don't believe that so here means amount. As if you could say, a child might spread their arms out and say, I love you so much. I think it means the manner of love. Like as if saying, in this way, so in this way, God loves us. In this way, he demonstrated his love. The next word we come to is the object of this love, which is the world. All right? And so what does the world mean? That's what we need to ask when we come to this word is, what does it mean? And love can mean, uh, love, world can mean a number of different things throughout the Gospel of John, right? Um, The world can mean a number of different things, but here, I believe it's used in the way it's primarily used, which refers to the sinful and unbelieving world. And one example of this would be John 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So I believe the, the word world here refers to the fallen humanity that needs salvation. All right. And the word world, it's almost a tongue twister there, I'm trying to say it right, <laughs> would have been very surprising to those who heard it for a couple reasons. And to us, sometimes we don't hear this as surprising, but we need to understand how surprising this would have been. First, because it indicates God loved not merely the Jews, but also the Gentiles. 
A, a Jew would have understood that God loved them, but they would not have necessarily thought that God loved the Gentiles as well. But to hear that God loves not merely one nation, but all the ethnic groups in all the world, both Jews and Gentiles, would have been shocking and surprising. His love is not confined to any national group or spiritual elite, right? How shocking. A second reason why this word would have been surprising is because the world that God loves is not lovely, <laughs> but is rather unlovely. And this is where a lot of people get this wrong. And I think that's why this verse is not significant to a lot of people. The love of God is not really significant to a lot of people when they read this, although they might think they understand it. It makes a world of a difference in understanding this verse that you get it right. So we might at first hear this word and assume that God should love the world, right? We say there's a lot of lovely things in this world, right? Right? There's a lovely food, there's um, lovely people, there's lovely landscapes, beautiful music. The world is filled with lovely things. Why wouldn't God love this world? For this reason, we might not think it's a big deal to hear that God loves the world here. We might just read right past it. The problem is that the world he refers to here is, is, is speaking of unlovely, sinful, rebellious, wicked people. There's truly nothing lovely about them. They are in rebellion against God. We do not love God, we hate God. We even reject his good and perfect rule. This means that the world is not in any way worthy of God's love. What we deserve is rather hell, judgment, anything but love. So love here is supremely surprising. And this is exactly what makes God's love so great, doesn't it? What makes his love so great, and get this, is the fact that God loves such a sinful, undeserving world as this. You know, if the world was lovely, it wouldn't say a whole lot about God's love. It takes a degree of love to care for someone who loves you. It takes a much greater degree of love to care for people who hate you. And we all know that that's true. So understanding this, how undeserving the world is of God's love, is key to understanding John 3, verse 16. You can only begin to understand what it means that God says he so loved the world if we first understand the world and the wickedness and undeserving nature and the condition of it. The next word tells us about the loving action that God took and that he gave his one and only son. So how do you know that someone loves you? And the answer is obviously through tangible action. Right? Not just through words, not just through some nice sentimental things that someone might say to you, but demonstration of that love. How do we know that God loves us? Well, He gave, He demonstrated. He didn't just say that He loves you, He didn't just tell you some nice words for you to hear. 
but he took concrete action, didn't he? How do you determine the measure of someone's love then? If actions are required to show love, for us to know that we are loved, then how do you know? How do you measure the degree of someone's love? How do you measure their cost? You must look at the cost of what they did, right? You must measure it by the cost of their actions. And so let's look at the, at the cost of the actions here to understand how much love that God is expressing here. What did, what did God give? Well, it says here he gave his son. What possession could be greater than God's son? But it says more than that, doesn't it? It says he gave his only son. What is more valuable than an only son? But that's not it, is it? It said God gave his only son. God gave his only son. What could be more valuable than God's only son? The perfect, glorious, sinless, without fault creator of all things. How great is this gift? How about the highest, the greatest gift that could ever be given? No greater gift could ever be given than this. You think about it. Imagine if someone gave you the best and greatest car that you could possibly buy. I have no idea what it would be. But imagine if you were given this great car. Or imagine if someone did even more than that. They gave you a country. Or how about a continent? I mean, wow, you'd be like, that's pretty neat, right? Imagine if they just said you can do whatever you want with it. Scary as well. But you'd consider that, well, that's, that's really loving of someone to do. But that doesn't even compare. There is nothing that compares to the love that we see here from the Father in giving his one and only son. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story from a minister that he heard that illustrates the greatness of God's love here. This minister was talking to a married couple who were having marital difficulties. There was much hardness and bitterness coupled with a lack of misunderstanding. A lack of understanding, I should say. At one point, the husband spoke up in obvious exasperation. I have given you everything, he said to, his, to the wife. I have given you a new home. I have given you a new, new fur coat. I have given you a new car. I have given you, and it went on and on. <laughs> but when he had ended, the wife said quietly, That much is true, John. You have given me everything but yourself. And I just want you to hear the greatness of what God gives here. The greatness of his love. But that's not it. To calculate the cost, we also have to factor in the way or manner in which he gave this gift. He gave his greatest possession as a sacrificial offering for sin on a cruel cross. He took God's wrath on himself. He poured out his wrath on his son that he did not deserve. The father gave what was most costly to himself in the most costly way imaginable. And, and you, you have to think of it kind of like Abraham and Isaac. Right? Remember that story? Remember Isaac was Abraham's only son, the one to whom, through whom the promises were going to come? 
And here he is being told to sacrifice his one and only son, and he, he raises the knife up, he's ready to go at it, and God stops him, right? But God actually gave his son. God did not stop with the knife raised. God lowered the knife on his son. He poured out his wrath on his son that he did not deserve. Now there's one more aspect that is necessary to calculate the costliness of the gift. Think about the ones whom he gave the offer of the gift to. Those who hated him. What a costly gift. For people who cared nothing for him. I mean, that's more costly, isn't it? When you think about it. What can we conclude about the greatness of God's love in giving his one and only son? Well, this is the most costly gift that could ever be given, first of all. It was given in the most costly way imaginable. The cross. And it was offered to the most unworthy people imaginable who cared nothing for him or his gift. This should cast out any doubt about the Father's love. There should be absolutely no doubt of the Father's love in our minds in light of this. The next words we will look at tell us about the results of responding properly to the offer. We read, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now there are two possible destinations that each one of us are headed towards based on your response to God's loving offer. Some will experience forever life, others will experience the opposite, which is perishing, which is also forever death. And what I want us to understand and to see is the magnitude of God's love by looking at the terrible destination that he came to rescue us from. And that terrible destination is described as perishing here. To perish means to experience the opposite of eternal life, to miss out on the blessings of the age to come. And the duration of this condition, and make sure that you grasp this, the duration of the condition is for eternity. This is eternal perishing. Eternal means to experience eternal punishment. It's not annihilation because it needs to be understood as being parallel and opposite to eternal life. So the perishing here is eternal perishing. Eternal judgment. Eternal separation from the goodness of God. Eternal separation from that which is life, which is God and his goodness. You can see the present and future condition by looking at John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There is a present condemnation that we stand under. In verse 18 it says that as well. And there's a continually remaining under that to the point to where we experience the fullness of it. And there is no hope of ever experiencing eternal life. 
at that time when we experience eternal judgment. This means we are already under condemnation because of our sin and unbelief. And perishing means to stay in this condition, not partially, but fully under, experiencing fully the wrath of God forever. And so I want you to understand this is what God came to deliver us from. Amazing love. You can also see the magnitude of God's love by looking at the destination he came to deliver us to, which is eternal life. And eternal life means to experience the fullness of the goodness and favor of God, right? The life of God in you. The fullness of joy, the fullness of blessing. It's to know and be in relationship with God himself. John 1 verse 4 says this, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That life is Jesus. Jesus is that life that he gives. Amazing thought. And eternal life means to experience the fullness of God's goodness forever and ever and ever. You know, in some sense, we experience that today, don't we, when we're saved. We begin to experience, in part, this eternal life, the, the, the goodness of God um, we begin to experience. But one day, we'll experience that fully. We'll experience the fullness of the goodness of God that is already ours for eternity, never-ending. There is no more loving offer that could ever be made than this. The promise of rescue from eternal judgment to eternal life. What amazing magnitude of love we see in Christ Jesus. The next words tell us what is required for anyone if they are ever to have this eternal life. And the words that it says here are believe in him. Here we are told what is required to have eternal life you must believe in him. You must believe in Jesus, the totality of his being, his person, his work, and his words. In other words, you must embrace the totality of who he is and what he claimed to be. This means, for instance, you must believe in him as being the one who satisfies the soul. The key to experiencing eternal life from the human side is believing in him. And I want us to understand that the fact that faith is required magnifies the love of God. When you think about it, what this means is that it is a free offer. It is free. Through faith alone, we could not in any way earn our salvation. We could not in any way do any works that would ever qualify us for this great salvation. We could never do anything to earn God's favor, to bring us back into the presence of God. The only way we could ever receive salvation is if it was free by faith alone in Christ alone. He must do the work and it must be given to us as a gift by faith alone, in him alone. And so you just see the magnificence of the love of God in the way he brings us salvation. A supremely loving offer. Notice we're finally told who this offer is made to. Notice the word there, whoever. Whoever believes. Anyone without exception within the sinful realm of the world who believes will be saved. 
you know who the whoever is by comparing it to the world, right? The world is the whoever here. The sinful world. There are parallel words that help us understand each other. We see the love of God in the freeness of the offer, whoever believes. Indiscriminate. Whoever believes will be saved. You can therefore make the same offer to anyone. And I think John Piper says it rightly. Listen to this. You can say to anyone, God loves you, and this is how he loves you. He gave his son to die so that if you would believe, your sins would be forgiven and you would have eternal life. God lovingly offers you this today. So the question is, what is your response going to be? Will you live or will you perish? There's one more word, the word love. How are we to understand this word? And usually we assume that the word love means the same thing whenever we hear it. But there are different ways that love is expressed throughout the Bible. And I think we can understand it better by comparing it with other ways that God expresses love throughout the Bible. So we, we must always let the Bible define what it means by love rather than bring our own assumptions, preconceived ideas to the text. So I want to begin by saying that God expresses a common love for all creation, including all people in general. And we see this in Matthew 5, verse 43 through 45. This is the common love for all, all right? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is explaining how God loves all creation, right? Even his enemies. Incredible. Whenever you see rain coming down, whenever you see the sun coming up, that is God loving not only his friends, but also his enemies. That's God's love. Every day you wake up, you are seeing God's love. Jesus' point is that you, and Jesus said this in Matthew 5, he's saying you are to treat others in a similar way to the way God treats his enemies. You are to love them in a similar way. You're not to treat them poorly and badly and be mean to them. You're to love them by caring for them. That's God's common goodness. God also expresses a common love for all fallen creatures by making the free offer of salvation available to all. This is the love we see in the passage of John 3.16. He loves the world by sending his son and offering salvation to all who will believe. The love is in the offering. This is a real, sincere offering from God. Whoever comes will be saved. Whoever believes will be saved. And you should be able to make this offer to anyone. God loves you so much that he offers you salvation. If you believe, you will be saved. Whoever believes will be saved. And this is true. And we have to make that clear when we're giving the gospel. But there's another different expression of love we see in the Bible from God. It is not the same love we see here in John 3.16. It is God's love for his chosen covenant people. This is greater love than John 3.16 in that it is his predestining love that goes beyond the offer and guarantees that it will be 
received. What kind of love is this? This is a love that chooses or elects a people for himself. This is a love that regenerates a person and gives them birth. In other words, this love not only offers saving grace, but makes it happen. This is a love that empowers, that actuates the heart, that compels the heart to receive the offer, that makes it alive. This is a love that brings a person into a personal, everlasting, covenant relationship with God. This is a love that overcomes the resistance and the rebellion and the barriers that stand between you and God. Where do we see this love? And I just want to show you, it's all over the Bible. We see it illustrated through Israel in Deuteronomy 10, verse 14 through 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Not only did he offer love to Israel, he chose them sovereignly, unconditionally. He didn't negotiate with them. We also see this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We see this in Ephesians 1 verse 5. Listen to this verse and hear what it's saying. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And John 3, verse 8 tells us about this love. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus said, this is how it happens. You, you cannot control the wind, neither can you control the Spirit, nor can you control the way he works and gives birth. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 5 calls this love great love. Listen. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the great love. Beyond offering life to spiritually dead people, it actually gives them life and conquers the deadness that would otherwise control us. One more. We can go on and on. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amazing love. Amazing love of God. A love that does not only offer, but also causes us to receive the offer. There's one more different type of expression of love in the Bible, in his word. God the Father expresses a unique love towards his son. God's love for his son. Whenever you hear that the Father loves the son, you are seeing the special love that the Father has for him. John 3, verse 35. The Father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. How is the love that the Father has for the son different than other loves? Well, it's different in this way. The Father loves the Son because He is worthy of being loved. You get that? 
Everything about the Son is compelling the Father's love towards him. He is lovely and he is worthy. We are loved in spite of our sin, but there is no sin to overcome in the Son. Everything about the Son is infinitely worthy of being loved. So what can we conclude today about God's love from this verse? We can conclude that God's love is immeasurably greater in every way than all other loves. It's transcendent. It's unparalleled. It's indescribable. Frederick M. Lehman wrote this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. It is impossible. It is impossible to hear this if you understand it and not be moved by God's love. You cannot really understand this verse and not be moved by God's love. What should God's love compel you to do? What should it move you to do? Well, it should move you to believe in him, to be saved, and to worship him. The offer is to all who need to be saved, to rich, to poor, the, irre- the irrelevant middle, <laughs> black, white, brown, male, female, Canadian, German, Australian, <laughs> whoever will believe. And so the question is, why would you not believe and be saved right now? And I ask you, give me one reason why you would not believe. And the only reason why you would not believe is because of pride. And so I ask you, is your pride really worth eternal life? Is it really worth eternal destruction to hold on to your pride? Everyone already knows what you and I are really like. We have nothing to hide. We need a Savior, so believe and be saved. Kyle Rittenhouse just went through a trial. His trial ended a couple days ago. Did anyone see his response to the verdict? He was on trial for, I believe, seven different accusations that were brought against him. And as the verdict was read, each accusation, you heard these words, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And as those words were spoken, if you watched Kyle, you would see him falling to the ground as the impact of those words struck him to the heart. He literally collapsed in his chair. Now think about this. We are guilty. Here is God saying, I can take away your guilt. I can take away your condemnation. I can say, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. (laughs) What amazing love. So believe, repent, turn, trust in him, be saved, and worship. So what should compel God's, what should God's love move you to do if you're a believer? It should compel you to worship, adore, be faithful, to love, and to confess his name. That's what it should compel you to do. 
God's love enables us to persevere victoriously even through the hardest of circumstances. It makes us unconquerable. Even though we are crushed, we are not destroyed when we understand the love of God. And let me leave you with an example of this from Corrie Ten Boom's sister, Betsy. During the Holocaust, Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were brought to a woman's prison named Ravensbrück. Corrie re- remarked how bad she had heard the place really was. They knew something about how bad it was. Because her sister Betsy understood God's love, she was able to say these words. No pits so deep that God's great love will not be deeper still. And then on her deathbed, Corey heard again these words from Betsy. No pits so deep that God's great love's not deeper still. His great love will endure. She understood God's love. Do you? Let's pray. Dear Father, our minds cannot comprehend the immeasurable greatness of the love of God. Lord, that you would send your Son to die on a cruel cross for those who hated you is truly amazing love, unparalleled love, indescribable love. And so we want to begin just by thanking you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving me. And so, Lord, we ask that you would enable those who are here this morning to see their pitiable condition, to recognize that they will perish for eternity outside of your favor, will experience your wrath apart from your saving grace and mercy. And so I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that they would confess willingly and loudly and passionately with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that they would believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that they would be saved. And Lord, I pray for all of us. I pray that your love would move us and constrain us to worship you for the rest of our lives and to be obedient. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, that we have a reason to rejoice today. We have a reason to praise. We have a reason to sing today, Lord. And that's because of you and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.